Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast with Shredded Ed, Cardio Johnny, Paul C, Matt Mork Super Troll, and Brazil Hadley. The best infotainment show around where you'll hear us joke, banter, and debunk all the nutritional myths you've heard time and time again, helping you get fit, healthy, and shredded. Welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast, episode number 52. Hello, Jonathan. You what, son? Rattling through well. Yeah, we are actually. We are, uh, well, we'll soon be on the century before we know it, I'm sure. Yeah, then we're on a thousand, yeah. then 10,000, and then everybody will know us. I don't know about 10,000, mate. One a week. Yeah, for yeah. One, one a week, obviously, so 50, yeah. 52 a year. So 30 odd years. Well. well, we'll be hitting this hard when we're 70. Okay. No. Mm. No. Mm. I'm not sure. Well, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, hopefully, we'll retire by then. I'm not sure we'll have the content for it. If I'm honest. Thirty. Mm, yeah. It's a lot of content, isn't it? Thirty-five it is, years of nutrition content. It is a lot of content. Um, I think the issue is is uh, the as much as there are new things coming out, and we do understand more and more about nutrition. The actual concept doesn't change that much for a long, long time, really. In fact, um, something that was said in the conference I was at yesterday, which I'll probably talk about in a minute, but uh, was that a lot of this research has been around for a long time. Like a lot, mm. of, even some of the newer research that you think is quite new, there's been previous versions of like similar studies that have been around for sort of twenty, thirty years, um, kind of doing doing or showing the same thing. So. You know, it's not like, I, I, we, we do say this a lot in the fitness industry. There isn't really anything new in the fitness industry in nutrition. You know, there's a few smaller things come out, but the fundamentals don't really ever change. I suppose we'll, we'll start to know more about the gut in the, in the future. Yeah. We test there might be something else. Yeah, that, to be honest, they're, they're, they're probably the two things. So <laughs> gut, gut health, bacteria, that type of stuff is quite emerging. And obviously DNA testing is nowhere near now, but I think a lot of the experts predict that maybe even in five years that we might actually have something where we can test DNA and come out with some type of um, specific or bespoke protocols for people to optimise stuff. But who knows? I would get it done. <sighs> yeah, if, if, if someone said, right, I tell you what, here's a test, you know, here's a little, here's a little uh, thumbprint test, take that, block, block the blood, send it away, come back, and it'll tell you, Essentially, how to get jacked and shredded if you just kind of do exactly what this this plan says, i.e., I suppose, like eat these specific foods at these times or whatever. Yeah, bleeding hell, I would as well. Imagine to come back with your your genes enable you to just eat chicken and broccoli. Mm. And that's pretty loud. I I, I, I would take it. Yeah, well, if I got shredded and jacked, mate, I think yeah. most most a lot of people would just go, yeah, all right, cool, I'll survive. Bodybuilders would, well, wouldn't they? Hundred yeah. percent. Absolutely. Um, you know the um, what is it? The the Belgian bull. Is it the Belgian blue bull or Belgian bull? I can't remember. You know this. The, you know the bull you see that is absolutely stacked, like there's an absolutely muscular cow. So obviously, that's like protein missing. I don't know. They've done yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that has that has like um, what is it? Uh, I want to say myostatin. I'm yeah. Not, yeah. Obviously, that has like a receptor deficiency or something where obviously it can't recognise it. So or it has it missing. So therefore, like that that's the thing that in humans stops us growing overgrowing muscle. Whereas they don't have it, hence they are jacked as a motherfucker. That would be lovely if someone could just come and knock mine out so mine does the same. That'd be brilliant. 
Dragon, Dragon that could happen in the future. Well, I'll be honest. I'm very surprised. Bear in mind that we know that's the what what we know that that's a cause, not a cause. Sorry, we know that it does limit our muscle gaining potential. Um, pr- I guess the 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 reasoning is actually there's a reason why we are limiting it because it's actually probably bad for our health to obviously not do it. Hence, obviously, I guess a lot of the issues that steroid users have when they do obviously get oversized. Um, not that that's yep. the only reason, but because um, yeah, and hey, just because you're muscle bound and all, and like twenty stone doesn't mean you're gonna be any. Well, you might be slightly healthier, but you're still overweight. Yeah, which we know. Yeah. Is healthy. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you might be healthier than the same weight obese individual, maybe. Yeah. But would you be healthy? I, you know, I'd argue certainly for, like from a cardiovascular um, situation. You know, you're carrying around that type of weight. That's a lot of strain in the heart, regardless whether it's muscle or fat. And that's why, obviously, we've talked before around BMI and. Yeah, that has actually been quite useful indicators for like a lot of health uh, markers rather than people saying, oh, it doesn't take into account someone's athleticism, it's useless. No, really not. really is quite useful actually in a lot of, lot of scenarios. But I, I would imagine you know, there's no 20-stone bodybuilder at the pro level who's, who's healthy. No, probably not. Well, certainly not all year round as well because obviously even dieting to those lean levels can be quite damaging to a lot of things. Um, it's just obviously quite fortunate, I guess. That's short term. Most people don't walk around like it all the time. So, um, also, even at that twenty stone weight, unless obviously you're genetically modified, mm. then to get to that sort of level of condition, you're going to need to use substances which are obviously not conducive to great health yeah. long or optimal health long term. Yep, absolutely. Um, maybe some types of hormones. I don't know how we've done this. That's a great segue. Yeah, yeah, it's impressive. I don't know how that genuinely wasn't even planned either. And all of a sudden, because obviously there would have probably been more, um, more, more tangents being made there. But as we got right round to the today's topic or today's content, I was thinking, oh, let's just let's just segue in there. Ideal, amazing. Um, so yeah, I guess today's topic we want to talk about how you can, um, or basically hormonal optimization for fat loss. Mm. So how Sounds can you, like Yeah, how can you manipulate your hormones to get the most shredded or the most optimal rate of fat loss? So uh, we're going to tell you how to do that today. Ooh, Ooh. that was a crowd Spoil- <laughs> Spoiler alert. No, to be, right, so um, if anyone hasn't been following me and the Nuances Nutrition page on Instagram this week, or yesterday, that was this weekend, I was at a uh, Mac Nutrition conference. Uh, where we had one James Krieger, who is a legend in his own right, uh, talking about various things. And this was one of the topics he covered. thought it was really cool. So we have been inspired to basically copy a lot of his content and tell you guys. So, <laughs> um, but it's, it's not copying content. We're just we're, we're learning from him and passing on the learn. So um, I thought it was really, really good, actually. So that's why I want to talk about it. So. He is a legend of a man. He is, he is, he is, he is. And I, I'm not going to throw any more spoilers out there right now, but um, he's a legend of a man. The guy did stay up till, I think, 4 a.m. Bear in mind, obviously, got in, I think, early hours of the day before. Um, he did say he was very tired in, in the morning. And then, actually, no, he didn't get in early. He got in late, late on Friday night, I think, or sort of Friday afternoon. And then, obviously, after a long flight over from Seattle, I think he's from. He's from Seattle, I think that's what he said. And, uh, yeah, so, obviously, long day presenting, and then, yeah, still, still up till 4 a.m. drinking shots for the rest of us. So, Legend. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I, t- I did have a conversation with him, and I said to him, 
you've actually got a lot to live up to because um, both Spencer and Alan, like Alan especially, I know stayed up till Alan Aragon stayed up till five a.m. doing shots because I was with him. So I, I witnessed that. And I know I left Spencer and the rest of the, the crew hanging out in Revs in Loughborough when Spencer was down about three a.m. So we know they at least last until then. I think there's picture evidence of him lasting longer than that. So I did say you've got you know this. Two two massive footsteps there that you've got to try and follow in. So, which he did a damn mighty fine good job of of trying. So, fair play to the to the guy. But yeah, no, he's uh, he's super cool. Very 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 smart. Like incredibly smart. Um, and yeah, just like a super nice guy as well. So, um, but yeah. So, talking about hormonal optimization. How are your hormones, Johnny? Can you speak right now or? At the moment, my hormones probably not optimal because I don't sleep very much. So I can imagine if you can imagine my cortisol levels might not be the, the best. I don't know. I'm just guessing, but yeah, well, you know, that's a good good another segue into what we really should say. So obviously, we are not endocrinologists. We have not been uh, trained in endocrinology, um, so therefore, we know very little. Um, I believe endocrinologists go through something like seven years of medical training before they can start to practice or something like that. So it kind of gives you a bit of an idea of the complexity of the of the situation. So I just preface that that don't take any advice for anything we're saying today necessarily. Um, you know, it's just just for funs, funsies. Um, and also, if anyone is trying to talk to you about your hormones and and um, directly optimizing or regulating or treating you know like taking skin fold tests or even taking blood samples and saying oh your cortisol's too high you have adrenal fatigue you must take this special uh chinese herbal supplement to reduce this um just say bullshit and say you're an idiot and leave so if you've seen an idiot abroad you know carl pillicanton and you've heard this the the series where he talks about bullshit man yeah Bullshit. Bullshit. Say that, then. Yes. Um, it is very complex. So basically, if, if, if you've got issues or you, you suspect you have issues with your hormones, the best thing to do is go see a doctor who will refer you to an endocrinologist if appropriate. Um, other than that, then basically just, just listen to what I have to say today and then you can obviously uh, take any actions at the end of it. Ooh, another spoiler? I don't know. Right. So let me start with this. So if hormonal optimization existed, i.e. in terms of um, if you could do something yourself through, we are talking specifically diets, because as I say, we're not endocrinologists. We don't start doing anything in terms of injecting or uh, adding hormones or anything like that. So um, if you were to do it through diet for fat loss, then it must do at least, or it must do one of three things essentially. So it either needs to increase your energy expenditure you know, calories in, calories out, etc. Um, it needs to decrease your energy expenditure, again, calories in, calories out, so by like dec decreasing appetite, or it could be another scenario where it might cause a bit of a tissue recomp. So uh, it could promote, so we're not talking turning muscle into, uh, sorry, fat into muscle, that is impossible and physiologically impossible, but it might be that the partitioning ratios might change and stuff like that where you could potentially um, build muscle and burn fat at the same time, hence causing a recomp rather than um, 
yeah, rather than actually specifically converting fat to muscle because that doesn't happen. It's like no. it's like trying to bake a cherry pie with apples. Can't do it. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I thought that was a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, I thought it was good. So, so yeah, so obviously it must do one of those threes, and, and obviously it's kind of like, well, Johnny, if I, like I'm going to ask you this question because James asked the audience this. Um, he said, okay, well, you know, out of the hormones you know then um, that are involved in, I suppose, fat loss or, or energy expenditure or whatever, which ones do you think that you, if you were going to try and manipulate, which ones do you think you would go for first? Hunger. Yeah, but the hormones. Reduction specific, specific, specific ones. Specific hormones, yeah. What would you think? Okay, well, you know, what 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 ones would I look couple. at? Johnny a couple. Just just name whatever ones you, you think you look at first, mate. Um Grelin, Grelin, whatever you say. Grelin, yeah. Leptin. Um is it CCK? CCK, yeah. Yeah. Um, is it Cortisol? Cort- I don't actually I can't remember what's Why is another one? PY. Peptide YY, yeah? Yeah. Um, good, mate. Good. I like it. Good knowledge. You like that? Yeah. I can't remember what CCK stands for. Is it like Colos? It's a big one. Yeah. Um, um, I don't remember. It's like Colos, Sister, something or other. I, yeah. You know, it's CCK, but whatever. Webs, Webs, Trebs. Let's, yeah, there, I think there's some good ones. Obviously, like leptin and grillin tend to be the, the most too common known that hormones that I talked about in terms of appetite and hunger I suppose aren't they um, yeah. what I'm going to do is say right okay well there are uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 that were named out of many 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 more so there are many 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 more than those 14 that, that also could potentially be involved in fat loss in some manner so out of the 14 that were I thought it might be just worthwhile me just kind of going through quickly one by one what they are, what they do, and essentially what then effect it might it might have on fat loss. So, um, starting with leptin. So, as I said, one of the the two that you probably feel are the most popular or most talked about within the fitness industry. Um, you know, your general pop might not have heard of them, but essentially, leptin is uh, a hormone secreted in response to eating. So, uh, it's it's secreted through the fat cells, um, and essentially, it's a hormone that's supposed to say that um, you are satisfied. So when you eat, you have a meal, and you're supposed to then produce leptin and say, yeah, pretty full now, I don't need to eat anymore. Um, I think this was the holy grail when they found it, and they said, if we can sort this out, we can sort obesity, but it didn't quite work. No, no, exactly. So um, I think, what was it, mice, uh, where they first discovered it in, and as in that, that leptin existed. And when they increased leptin, or I don't know if it was in, they've increased it, or they found mice that didn't have it, and they and they Put it, put, they gave it leptin and it basically stopped eating. They're like, there we go, we've just solved obesity. And obviously when they then put exogenous leptin into humans, it didn't quite work, did it? I think, had, had no effect. I think this, this might be a little, it's not off topic, but... Are you talking about... You're gone, you're gone. I know you're but this is when people talk, look in the media, and they thought, I've seen this one study in mice and they think, and oh, that's definitely going to work in humans. And then someone picked the media pick up on it, they tell everyone, and it's like, yeah, this is a new thing when actually... A human is superbly complex, and you yeah. fuck yeah. with leptin. Something else is going to change to sort of combat what you've just done. Yeah. Well, the yeah. thing the thing is, like, the reason it didn't work is because the obese people aren't leptin deficient. You know, 
like necessarily like they, well that some might be but you know what i mean like generally if you're obese uh, it's like and it's not because you don't have any leptin it's because you're generally leptin resistant so giving yeah. you more doesn't really do a great deal um because obviously there are some conditions where the obviously you either i think you are literally you don't even secrete leptin so they're like I think the, the 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 main studies or things people talk about is like kids or children that just have the most insatiable appetite. They literally will just eat and eat and eat and eat, and obviously they're obese. They did give them exogenous leptin, and that did stop them eating. But that's because obviously they were deficient. Whereas obviously when they're saying, "Oh yeah, we've solved obesity and we're giving exogenous leptin to obese people," it didn't have the same effect because it, they weren't deficient in it. It's just a case of that basically the leptin wasn't doing anything in the first place. It wasn't stopping them eating. So um, obviously giving them more didn't really change that. That was a bit of a right yeah. kick in the teeth, you know. Yeah. Key. No, yeah. never mind. So um, yeah, no, exactly. And I guess like the 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 when you diet, you lose uh, body fat, and as I said, leptin's um, secreted by body fat, body, body by fat cells. So by losing weight, you actually secrete less leptin, which then means you obviously are kind of, which is it should make sense. It's then like appetite regulation in that. You're kind of saying, oh, actually, you know, I'm going to be less satisfied when I do eat because obviously you don't secrete as much leptin. So it kind of encourages you to then eat more, which is obviously a survival mechanism against getting too thin and losing too much weight. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, I don't think we'll go into too much more than that because it might spoil some of the other stuff. But yeah. that's essentially how leptin works. Ghrelin, so the one of the other main ones, appetite hung, uh, um, regulating hormones. That's secreted by the stomach, releasing the stomach, and it essentially tells us when to eat. So it's kind of like um, when we eat. Ghrelin, sorry, well, yeah, well, when we eat, ghrelin goes down, leptin goes up, and vice versa. So, obviously, when we get to like meal times, you see a rise in ghrelin, um, and obviously that then stimulates to eat, which then obviously then triggers the whole leptin response, etc. And that's how we appetite, uh, regulate our appetite. Doesn't ghrelin get it also? I read it the other day in Lionel McDonald's book, actually. Apparently, ghrelin gets secreted at, um, what's it called? It's like if you eat. A bit straight, nine, twelve, and yeah, three. Yeah, like in, in line with circadian rhythms. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah, I think we, that's nuts. Yeah, that is quite cool. I mean, we obviously that was something I think we touched on the episode with Alan Flanagan. Um, obviously, when we were yeah. talking about circadian rhythms, him in that you can. I don't know if you train, if it train or condition, but I guess you do kind of condition yourself to eat at the same yeah. time, which is why, like, you probably find yourself, like you say, if you don't eat, you get to a certain time period of the day, and you think, oh, I'm starting to feel hungry now, and obviously it's we have our own natural circadian rhythms, which obviously tells us when kind of to eat. Um, generally, uh, hence we kind of suppose as a a race have a. Although I think strangely, actually, I think Alan did say that we aren't actually we don't have a natural circadian rhythm to eat breakfast, but we do have like a lunch and dinner almost. But anyway, by by the by, um, but yeah, no, no, exactly that it does. It kind of goes through like these circadian rhythms, which is what causes us to to eat. And I guess like that's part of the reason why people shift workers and night shift workers as well have such a problem managing appetite as well. Yeah, well, funny enough, I've done an experiment a few times. Well, I know usually I go to I got a break, I got a dinner at one o'clock, one ten past. Uh-huh. So I've not looked at my clock deliberately all day and and seen how where naturally I've got hungry, mm-hmm. and I've not looking at the time mm-hmm. that I can go longer. Well, yeah. actually, you know, if I look at the time, it's like oh, it's five to one. Yeah, I got food dinner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess there's obviously a different mechanism involved in terms of yeah. even just the act to keep yourself busy. I mean, you might almost ignore some of the natural hunger signals and grilling. I mean, obviously, it's funny, isn't it? obviously grilling kind of tells to eat, but it's one of those things where like, you can ignore it, 
you know, you can sometimes not even notice it. I suppose if people have poorly managed um, or, or poorly regulated hormones and that, then obviously I guess they you know, don't work properly. It's the whole point. So I guess it's very multifaceted and lots of reasons as to why and when we eat and what we eat and that type of stuff, even going into the things we talked about last week about the, the Hungry Brain book. So Even with the calories, the calories are the principle of weight loss, what, what impact on those is ridiculous oh yeah, you yeah, yeah. ridiculous yeah i mean we would we would have enough content for ten thousand episodes probably mate if if we wanted to to go into that much detail but yeah there's that much there cool right so insulin another hormone so which uh is secreted by the liver in response to eating very normal don't believe the Bullshit of people that claiming that insulin causes fat gain. God, I've had that conversation too many times this week on Facebook with ketards, as they're mm-hmm. you known within the industry. Um, that's ketogenic retards, by the way. In case so it's, it's very harsh term, but you know, it's what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, screw my liver, and it's basically essentially, and the insulin's job is almost like a sometimes referred to as a storage hormone, so it shuttles out. By glucose, so glucose at the blood uh, into nutrients. Uh, sorry, nutrients into cells. So you kind of shuttles that out into either fat cells or muscle cells. So it can do both, and that's why people think, oh, without insulin, you can't you can't store fat, which is incorrect anyway, because um, fat can be stored without uh, insulin. Um, but I, uh, the irony of it all is that insulin is actually, um, as a hormone, um, an appetite suppressant. So which kind of logically makes a hundred percent sense. So you eat, you release insulin to clear the food out of your blood, and then it does its job and says, you don't need to eat anymore, mate. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. It's kind of like, why they, like the, the, the ketards claim that it stimulates appetite. Mm, okay, so eat a meal, insulin is, or eat, eat you know, an insulinogenic meal, uh, insulin secreted, clears the blood, eat a bit more, mate. Mm, you just had a meal. Yeah, but you know, we're just gonna we want to encourage you to eat some more. That makes total sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just it's that old thing of oh, your blood glucose levels are really low and all that sort of stuff. Oh, you're gonna go for min, oh, hypoglycemic oh, and all that sort of stuff. It's like, well, no, actually, you don't quite understand how the body works if you believe that. No, and it's pathetic. Well, maybe that takes us down because obviously, so interesting. Obviously, don't we say manages appetite? There's also some, I guess. It could be re- uh, related also to any potential body recomp because obviously I said insulin can, might decide where to shuttle, uh, shuttle nutrients into muscle cells, body fat cells, etc. So you know, if the partition ratios are better and you get more muscle from, from shuttling nutrients into there rather than more fat, that could potentially have that um, effect. But yeah, obviously, so you talk about hyperglycemia. So obviously if it clear, insulin clearing blood and then uh, uh, clearing blood sugars again, and obviously you're getting too much or low of a blood glucose response. Um, what happens? Well, your liver starts secreting glucagon, which obviously does the opposite. It starts to then break down stored sugar in the liver to replace it. So it's quite well managed. You see, your body's more intelligent than people think. No, actually, you can't. Yeah, that, that's almost why outside of like type one diabetics, you kind of don't get many people ever really go hyperglycemic. Even though people go, oh yeah, God, I got low blood sugars. Not really. It's your your body's pretty good at kind of making sure that doesn't happen, so you don't die. Um, it's kind of like yeah, you might feel lightheaded and other reasons why you feel a bit tired and you think it's low blood sugars, but yeah, it's unlikely unless I say you're you're a type one diabetic. Then there is a genuine serious risk of it. But yeah, 
serious risk of like death. Yeah, anaphylactic shock and death, which is not fun for anyone, in my opinion. So yeah, so glucagon, I think, I don't really know, obviously, so outside of what I've just said, the mechanisms, I don't know how it affects or could potentially affect fat loss, other than James said, again, potential recon, but I don't know the mechanism of why. Probably, again, something to do with like insulin and um, shuttling nutrient cells. I don't, I don't really know. Um, he probably did say, but I can't remember, so and I haven't made any notes on it. So, um, yeah, but obviously that's what it could do. So, thyroid, one of Johnny's favourites, I know. So, the thyroid, what does that affect, Johnny? Uh, metabolism. So, energy expenditure, correct. Yep. So, obviously, that's the effect that might happen. Fat loss is obviously if you have a hyperthyroid, a messed up thyroid where you're not creating or um, screwing up thyroid hormone, then your energy expenditure might reduce. Therefore, you might then unintentionally, um, or sorry, you will need to reduce your calorie intake alongside if that's the case, because otherwise yeah. you'll be in a calorie surplus and put on weight. But what happens when you're medicated? Um, yeah, that's a good question because I think, I'm sure, I've had this conversation with a few people, and obviously I don't know because I haven't looked into too much of the evidence, but I think medication doesn't necessarily automatically mean your metabolism recovers. Mm. You might tell me different. And I'll be happily corrected. No, I don't know. Don't know. Not okay. sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm sure I've asked that question actually um, to Martin in the lab, and I don't think I ever got an answer. So if anyone does know, if, any, if we've got any really smart people listening, um, there'll be a lot of people smarter than us, I'm absolutely sure listening, then please uh, write in and correct us if that's the case. But I, I've got a feeling like it doesn't, I mean, it might, be, it might correct in some, but I've got a feeling that it doesn't necessarily always correct um, any metabolic adaptation or decreasing energy expenditure. Um, but, I, but isn't it, I suppose it would it'd be depend on a person-to-person basis of how much it'd actually reduce, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Not everyone, even, even hyperthyroid doesn't necessarily mean you're 100% going to have a reduced energy expenditure either, does it? No. I mean, if someone's hypothyroid, hypothyroid and we just, I'm just making numbers up, I don't even know if this, this is true or not. If, if their energy expenses are reduced by 50 calories a day, is that really going to make a difference? Really? Not really, no. No. If it's like 500, then you got some issues. Yeah. Especially if you like 10 stone. Yeah. But obviously, I guess like some people hypothyroid can get like 40% reductions, can't they? So it's, it's, it can be quite a significant amount. Um, so there are generally people that are dieting on very low calories and maybe not losing weight and don't know why, and it might be because of that. Um, but... You know, it doesn't change. You know, we've we've talked about this enough times um, between us in online arguments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, it doesn't change the energy or calories in, calories out scenario or equation. It's well, it does. Sorry, change it. It doesn't mean it's not doesn't work. It just means it moves the goalpost slightly. So your energy expenditure is less. So you have to eat less, unfortunately, to obviously make it up. But isn't you know, Spencer hypothyroid? Sorry, Dulski. isn't Spencer Nadolski hypothyroid? I think he said that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, those diseases. Um, well, I don't, yeah, I think he did say though that he doesn't have a well, like a reduced energy expenditure though, does he? Okay. But think, he is. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah, he's jacked as hell. So, um, so yeah, so obviously that's how uh, thyroid could affect your fat loss. Um, cortisol, you mentioned, so known as I guess the stress hormone, um, mm. the hormones released during like the your flight fight or flight response, um. And it, that's pretty normal. It's produced by adrenal glands. Uh, rises first thing in the morning and then kind of uh, reduces during the day, generally in, in kind of normal people. 
Um, so it is kind of normal to have them. It also uh, gets released bouts of stress, as I said, hence the, the fight or flight response. Uh, and um, it's basically, I, th I think it's like cortisol is is there to kind of like help reduce inflammation, start off um, recovery processes, control blood pressure, um, and increase glucose metabolism. There you go, found it. So uh, it is very normal. Like cortisol always get a bad rap, doesn't it, in terms of like... Actually, do you want to hear something really cool, slightly off topic? And I haven't told you this, so this will be new to you. But James Krieger went yeah. through the probably the most famous um, metabolic adaptation study or dieting study, uh, the Minnesota starvation um, experiment. Yeah. Obviously, Ansel Keys. And uh, pretty much, I think it's something like within a certain amount of months. So, so basically, for those that don't know, during the... 40s, 50s, I don't know, basically during World War II, uh, there were 36 odd something like that individuals that they took through an experiment, a starvation experiment. Um, these were individuals that didn't want to go to war and they essentially were allowed to not go to war if they were to take part in this experiment. It was, it was to see basically what the effect of starvation is and then refeeding is on, on people because um, they wanted to see what it did. So these individuals lost like ridiculously amount, uh, a ridiculous amount of weight. I think, I can't remember the exact time. 25% of body weight, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So, like, they, they, they literally were on the, on the, you know, like, at li literal starvation, not just, you know, like what we all think of starvation being a bit hungry. Um, I think it was twenty four weeks, something like that. I think twelve weeks dieting, twelve weeks, twelve weeks starvation, twelve week. Um, well, I mean, they're on very low calories for that's the starvation part, and then the refeeding part. Obviously, they then were um, then refed and then in different methods. But anyway, the point is. I think after the dieting period, something like over half of the individuals all suffered severe edema. So edema is water, like, um, well, water retention basically. And they like, you know, they showed these pictures of them like stabbing their legs with their fingers and like having massive imprints that took ages to refill, seeing all the water come back. Um, and they said by the end of it, like, well, I think every single subject had suffered from edema. So this was thought that this was cortisol related edema. Um, in that people think that excess or high levels of cortisol um, holds water. And that's something that we've talked about. I, I don't know if we've even talked, I think we have probably talk, went through it on the podcast. Yeah. We've certainly been taught it by, through obviously MNU. Um, and it's something that's reasonably, I think, well recognized or established within the industry as a thing, as that exists. Um, in that there's something to do with cortisol is, is messing with the uh, adenosine receptors or whatever they are that control fluid intake. And therefore, making people that they get when they diet and they get highly stressed, too much cortisol, and therefore holding to water. And we often say like that's why sometimes you see the whoosh effect, uh, which your your best friend Lyle, as uh, he refers to, as when you uh, are dieting, not seeing any weight loss, wondering what the hell's going on, and all that sudden nowhere you get a massive drop in weight. And that's seemed to be, or thought to have been water just leaving the body in some manner. Um, some people, or I think Lyle actually depicts it as leaving fat cells, which I don't believe is actually physically. Uh, or physiologically correct so you know the idea is that you as you lose or uh, lose body fat at or fat fat cells that it's replaced with water and then eventually after enough time goes by the water then dissipates and therefore you see this whoosh now i don't think it leaves the fat cells but it was kind of accepted that even though it might not be leaving the fat cells specifically in some way your body's holding on to water due to too much cortisol and then if you diet long enough or you know sometimes even like a an increase in carbohydrates or uh, just even an increase in calories can sometimes just trigger your body to think, 
phew, I'm not so stressed anymore, get rid of that water. Um, however, the point of this story was James went through this, the Minnesota starvation experiment data and none of them had any increase in cortisol despite having this edema. So mm. it's kind of like, mm, we don't think it is cortisol related edema and that cortisol is not the mechanism for, for doing that, which was quite, uh, it's, it doesn't really have any real world um, applicability almost. So it doesn't really change anything in terms of what people should do or would do, I imagine. But it's quite interesting to think, shit, I thought that was what it was and it's not. So did they cortisol ever change from, from baseline when they were died in? Or does he mean it's not increased from where they normally sit? You know what I mean? Yeah. So so basically, obviously, their their baseline cortisol levels weren't, weren't in a, uh, not inappropriate. They, yeah, they, I mean, obviously, they did rise and, and fall, but they never really got out of baseline. Okay. So, so obviously, when they started suffering from edema, there was no evidence to suggest that cortisol was the thing causing this to happen. Because it wasn't it wasn't elevated in in the way that they would have expected. So what does he think? He said he, he, he said he didn't know. Not even a guess. Not really. No, no. He just said there must be other mechanisms that is probably causing it. So, which is why there's no replicability to it long term. Because obviously it's kind of like well, you know, we just don't know, but we still think it happens because you know we see the effect of the of the whoosh, or we see we often see the that scale stall in terms of when you expect them to be in a deficit, etc. So, yeah. But it's interesting. Anyway, so I thought it was a side note, but I thought it was worth bringing up because I thought it was quite a cool cool thing. It was yeah. a bit eye-opening, really, because you think that we believe something like that all along and all of a sudden the evidence doesn't actually support it. So, Which is quite cool because at least you can turn around and go, do you know what, I'm happy to change my stance on this yeah. or you know, kind of change my views because obviously I've now learned something new. The evidence has been put in front of me and it's different than I thought, So, which is what everyone That's should do. It's all about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what people should would be... Uh, mindful to take note of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, go tabs. Um, anyway, so growth hormone, another one. So excreted by the pituitary gland uh, and it's the, the, the role of growth hormone is to essentially, I think, make all of your organs and muscles grow. So Pretty straightforward then, really? Yeah, pretty straightforward. I guess um, that's often why it's looked at as growth hormone. Oh, let's, let's try and get some of that and get some big muscles. Um, obviously, obviously, see why the bodybuilders have big growth guts. They yeah. call it growth, they? Yeah, 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 like distended guts. Uh, I don't know if they're, like, I, I did read about that once. I'm not sure whether growth hormone is seen to be the cause of that or whether it's even that um, unusual. I think it's one of those things where if you're just in, uh, injecting anything anabolic and getting that big, you're going to have things like that happen anyway. Yeah. So. But yeah, so I guess obviously the way that would affect. If you could optimize that, uh, it would be a recomp of you know increasing muscle mass. So, um, uh, testosterone. So um, testosterone. I guess most people probably know what or, or got a good idea of what that's responsible for. So kind of the physical characteristics of men, reproduction, uh, obviously sex hormones, that type of stuff. So um, again, I guess it will t- uh, like taking testosterone is kind of seen as recomping and, and beneficial for muscle growth. Um, estrogen, obviously, again, a bit like testosterone, obviously responsible for physical characteristics of male, etc. Um, Johnny, it's probably best for you to go into that. Bear in mind, you're the you're the expert on women's nutrition at the moment, but yeah. we don't need to go into it. Obviously, it's it's kind of like the basically the role of estrogen is again, it's kind of like a recomping. Um, yeah, it's, it's got a bit of a bad reputation, and when it's not, it's not really the like estrogen that causes a lot of problems in women. It's actually the progesterone that causes most of the issues. Yeah. But yeah. that's the same in men as well, isn't it? Yeah. 
So, because obviously men still have some estrogen the same way that I think men do still have estrogen. Don't they? I haven't got that wrong. It's one one fifteenth on average of the women have, and vice versa. Women have roughly one fifteenth. Yeah, 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 testosterone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, you know, it's just that's why I have different effects, I guess. But uh, on to our mate CCK. So obviously at CCK, um, I should Google what it stands for. Actually, shouldn't I see what it was? But not that probably no one really cares. But essentially, that's a gut hormone released after a meal to regulate appetite. So a bit like leptin, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like precursors actually and stuff. Because obviously a lot of these hormones have like precursory hormones that will trigger and like follow off a domino effect almost, don't they? So yeah. Um, and I think another one that you mentioned again was GL GLP one. What was that? Glucagon like peptide. Yeah. yeah. Um, which again, another uh, gut hormone released to manage appetite. Um, I think that does kick off the release of insulin. So again, after we said, insulin has a um, a appetite blunting effect. And then, um, yeah, uh, peptide YY. So again, another hormone, which I think this one, because uh, I did look, I'm not going to lie, I didn't know this, is uh, made in the small intestine, and it does the same job as GLP-1, CCK, etc., etc. So again, they're just an appetite-regulating hormone. So all of those appetite-regulating hormones, the way they would affect body composition is by making you eat less naturally. You see, and you're like, I'm just not hungry, so I just eat less, so therefore you eat less calories, therefore you affect the energy balance equation. So yeah. they're all pretty obvious. And the last thing was, um, adiponectin, uh, which is a protein hormone involved in regulating glucose levels as well as fatty acid breakdown. So again, you know, energy expenditure and I guess potentially body comp having a regulating fatty acid breakdown because you might actually break down. But I guess, I don't know if that's correct or not because this is something I often tell, again, ketards, don't confuse fat, fatty acid oxidation with burning body fat. They are not the same thing. Just because you're burning more fat, as in fat oxidation, doesn't mean you're actually burning body fat. Because you can, if you're not in a calorie deficit, you can burn all the fat in the fucking world. But if you're not burning more than you're consuming, you won't be burning yeah. any body fat, even if the only thing you are burning is fat. Because you're not well, in a deficit. Still comes back to a deficit. Yeah. All these things still come back to the, the one base. Like. Yeah. That does annoy me, though, when people go, yeah, but fasted cardio, man. Like... You burn more more fat because you optimize more fat because you haven't eaten, so there's no carbs to, to burn or glucose. Yeah, but you just burn less later, so it just makes up for it. Like, and just because you're burning, um, fucking or oxidizing fat, it's muscle triglycerides anyway. It's not even body fat, like the majority of it. It's like, duh. It's like you can't you, you can't ever have a sensible conversation about it, can you? No, no. I think anyone like when you're when someone's so dogmatic in one approach anyway, like you you know full well like that is just an indicator you're not going to have a sensible conversation because like ninety nine times out of a hundred people are just going to be like no no you're wrong. But yeah, there's some yeah. evidence. No, you're wrong. In fact, it's exactly the conversation I had this week with someone in. Um, I've got a feeling it was actually in Eat Train Progress. Um, the Ginger Ninjas. What's his name? Oh my god, sorry. Like not. Um, what's his name? Does the Shredded by Science podcast with Luke Johnson? Uh, not Luke, uh, Luke Judd, Lawrence Judd. I can't remember bad I names. I, can I just say, like, if like, you know, I said last week about not thinking words. I do have an excuse this week. I got in at four a.m. and left the hotel at seven thirty, so I've only had three and a half hours of sleep. Impressive. So, yeah, yeah. But I left. I, Paul, if you're listening, you were snoring like a motherfucker. I let we shared, we had to share a room. Well, I didn't have to share a room. I want to share a room. And uh, yeah, I left him asleep at seven thirty when I left, and he was snoring like a trooper. 
Lampard. Like proper, yeah. proper bad. At one point, I thought I was going to have to just wake him up because I couldn't. I was like, I can't deal with this. I'm going to like put his head through the door or something. Like a donkey punch in the back of the head. Yeah, donkey punch, mate. That's something else. That was not happening. Just because we shared a room, that thing doesn't happen. <laughs> Way too far <laughs> there. <laughs> so I think we've gone through all of the hormones and the potential effects on um, fat loss or. Yeah, I suppose for fat loss. So essentially, you'd have to, well, we're looking at saying, right, okay, well, can we manipulate any of those for the re- for obviously to do the things we said to basically help? Um, the biggest problem I see is that, one, these have very, very, all of these things, so all of those 14 hormones we've just gone through, as well as all of the other ones we haven't gone through, they have multiple pathways and massive feedback loops that basically make it impossible to target to actually affect. So if someone's saying like, yeah, well, let's affect your cortisol like directly. Problem is, is like you change cortisol, like you said, like you kind of alluded to at the start, then something else takes over. Like, or like if you, the whole point of feedback loops for hormones is that like once enough's produced of something, there's a feedback loop to say, enough's produced, stop producing it. If you like try and change something, it just produces more, or vice versa, etc. There's a negative feedback loop which basically maintains it and keeps it regulated, which is normal, which is yeah. so hard. And to be honest, it's like, why do you think? Like, and this is again another. I'm stealing. I am stealing this from James, but he said like, why do you think that we've not been able to come up with a drug to kind of basically help obesity with this? Because it's just too complicated. We can't keep. We can't single out one thing to change because something else keeps changing it, changing the game. It's just too many factors and feedback loops and variables involved to do it and I kind of I suppose it's like you're giving away the, the, the whole point of this this podcast almost yeah. but but it, it's something that makes you realise when people say oh yeah it's as simple as reducing this one hormone I think they, it makes them it makes you realise they clearly don't understand the complexity of the human body and what it what it'll do mm-hmm. to protect itself to survive and you cannot outsmart it. Mm-hmm. It has evolved over millions of years, and it will outsmart you. It's like testosterone. People, need, well, men and women inject testosterone. What happened, this is a bit of a strange topic to talk about in our podcast, really. I doubt most of our listeners will like, want to know, but if a man takes testosterone and they balls shrink, because your body knows it's getting exogenous testosterone. So it knows through a negative feedback loop, through the test, testicles up to the hypothalamus stop producing testosterone we don't need it we've got plenty so it'll stop making it mm-hmm. it's just that's the way the body is you yeah. cannot trick it and, and, and if, it, you, if you go too far that might stop forever yeah then you're fucked yeah then you're yeah. fucked yeah but it's like it's like the insulin thing oh yeah keep insulin yeah keep insulin until men really low and this will happen so actually it clearly doesn't happen because People go on high carb diets, but as long as they're in calorie deficit, they still lose weight. And it's too simplistic. Yeah, that's one of my biggest issues, though. Is like when I'm challenged to say, okay, well, if you think reducing insulin is the is the key, explain to these people that are losing weight when they're only eating ice cream, only eating donuts. You know, I even use my own example of losing twenty five pounds for the photo shoot. Said I ate. Two, three hundred grams of carbs every day. Like I think the lowest I had was about one hundred and fifty grams of carbs, um, and I ate that every single day. Like I still lost fat. 
So just explain that then. So if insulin causes fat gain, explain it. They always come up with like, oh, well, you know, look at a diabetic. They have, uh, I can't think of the actual scientific term, but basically they have um, short fat lesions or I don't know what it is, but basically where they're injected, um, they're insulin the same, but they do get build up of like fatty stores, don't they have fat, little fatty lumps. Um, mm. That's why obviously diabetics have to move their insulin injections around quite frequently, other than not in the same place. And that's their rationale. Like, oh, you see, look, that, that does, it causes fat storage. It's like, oh my fucking God. Seriously. for Graham. Who was jacked diabetic. Exactly. It's like, okay. Explain that as well. But yeah, anyway, but we'll have gone off topic, but still. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I guess like, like you say, the feedback loop thing makes it one incredibly hard, um, very complicated, but and there's loads of things to think like, like, and James went through a lot of these. So like take insulin as an example, like insulin, does inhibit lipolysis, so lipolysis being fat burning. Yeah, it does. So basically, you eat carbs. Basically, again, logically, it makes sense. You, you get an influx of carbs and insulin because obviously carbs are insulinogenic, and it basically says, okay, stop burning fat because you've got a little carb to burn. Makes total sense. You know, why would you burn fat when you've suddenly got a load of excess fuel sitting there in the blood waiting to be used? What they also seem to forget though is that it has this thing of saying, right, well, you've got enough fuel now, stop eating. I eat blunt appetite. But it also stops breaking down muscle protein as well as as body fat. So that's quite a good thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that insulin is a pretty good, uh, not pretty good, it's involved in muscle building as well. It shuttles nutrients to muscles as well. It's not just all about fat cells with insulin. Mm-hmm. Like you, you forget in one major component, you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like they, they also forget that like hormone-sensitive lipase which helps breaks down fat, it's also inhibited by fat. Mm-hmm. So if you've gone, you've dropped your insulin off, fat can still stimulate that and stop fat breakdown. So mm-hmm. where's your where's your rationale for insulin people fat now? There isn't any. No, they, they just obviously, it's, that's a nice detail I like to leave out because it doesn't suit their argument. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just like, uh, but I mean, these things boil down to so, someone doesn't want to lose their pride, someone's making too much money. Mm-hmm. That's the only two things. Yeah. One of the things, like, say, obviously, okay, well, um, you know, we, we think, obviously, well, we know that inhibits appetite. I mean, in fact, it, obviously, some of the research we went through is, it wasn't animal models, but they said, like, injecting insulin, um, as long as it doesn't cause hypoglycemia, um, then it does decrease food intake and appetite. And, obviously, they also found the same thing when they knocked out the insulin receptors in rodents. The reason, obviously, I guess they're in rats, because you can't really do that to humans, can you? Let's be honest, it's a bit unethical. Um, but yeah, that did the same thing. So they got rid of insulin receptors. So therefore, it's like um, that just completely like stopped them eating again. So um, uh, did, 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 what else did he say? I've got some notes here. So um, I guess one thing he did mention, this is quite interesting. So obviously, we know that as you uh, put on weight, you do get, also, so the more obese you are, the more insulin resistant you might be. So you need more insulin to clear blood glucose. And obviously, that's kind of like... Um, pre-diabetes or you know you kind of get pre-diabetic pre-diabetic when you start to get to a point where you're secreting loads and loads of insulin than you should do given a certain load of blood sugars um, and obviously that does then kind of then start to develop into diabetic or diabetes so what it did say is actually like um, insulin resistance might stop the um, like the insulin signal which basically affects appetite so we're saying obviously like you know it'd be an appetite suppressant well if you're overweight and insulin resistant 
that might also do the same thing in terms of like your brain's insulin resistance. So your brain doesn't quite pick up on the fact that it's saying stop eating, you know, again, this appetite regulation. So therefore you eat even more, which is obviously, I guess, like, um, you know, like a vicious circle of self-compounding. So yeah. that's quite interesting. That was an interesting point. I guess like, you know, what, and I get one of the outcomes there is like, okay, well, how do you make yourself more insulin sensitive? Well, one of the best things you do is bloody just exercise, like do anything, move around, because that helps insulin sensitivity load. Not because we tend to think, I guess, insulin resistance in, in the uh, muscle cells and muscle tissues and stuff, don't we? We think obviously like in, but actually it's your brain as well. And obviously your brain is, is, is what's obviously taking these signals in insulin to tell you to stop eating. So exercise is also good for managing appetite, which is why, like we say, like just do some exercise, because the, the studies do show that people that do that exercise compared to people that don't, Eat less. Yeah. Winner, winner. That's what I, and I, I kind of made the point at the time thinking actually that makes a lot of sense because like, or okay, weight uh, or like um, exercise, the, the body evidence shows that exercise isn't great for, or exercise alone I should say, isn't great for um, the, the data in terms of people losing weight. You know, people tend to not be overly successful if they just focus on exercise. They need nu- like nutrient, um, oh, nutrition intervention as well. Um, yeah. that's way, way, way more accessible. Or, or even nutrition intervention on their own is way more successful than exercise intervention on their own. However, when you look at the weight maintenance evidence, so people maintain their weight, exercise is pretty good. And that kind of makes sense, because it's like, well, actually, yeah, that's probably what it is. They're exercising, it's kind of helping with the um, insulin resistance and actually allowing them to feel or recognize the satiety elements of it better. So, no, that's, that's I think it's pretty cool. So, um one of the things you might be able to do with that is obviously maybe using insulogenic foods to affect appetite. And Jane did go through some of the um, research that we do have in terms of things like um, some of the hormones that affect appetite. So we talked about obviously insulin, CCK, GLP-1, uh, and GIP. Um, and one of the things is that whey uh, seems to have more of an effect on these than um, a lot of other proteins. So uh, I think some of the research was done on whey versus casein, so they're two different types of dairy protein. Um, basically, they were suggesting that whey protein has a better effect on these and may actually show that they uh, helps people manage their appetite. So I think some of the studies did things on what they call preloading, where they put kind of like give people whey before eating a meal and, that, and, and actually leads them eating less during that meal, less than the actual whey itself. So that's, that was quite interesting. Um, you've got to think of the practicality of it in terms of is it practical for people to eat whey before they have meals because you know, it might, might not work. You've obviously got bro bodybuilders thinking about stuff like muscle protein synthesis and they're not going to want to have whey before a meal and then you know half an hour later have another protein serving because you know you know refractory periods and that stuff of stuff being you know muscle synthesis muscle protein synthesis already elevated. You can't have another one half an hour later and elevate it again. Um, which is too soon, so it might not be practical in some scenarios, but it's all quite cool. Some quite cool points in terms of like even for just for fat loss, um, giving people whey might stimulate them to to eat less just naturally. So, just because of whey specifically seems to have some sort of special properties in affecting some of the appetite regulating hormones. So, it's quite interesting. Um, so yeah, he kind of went through a lot of that stuff, and then I kind of like so he went through some of the other hormones. So ghrelin, like, is there anything we do to manipulate ghrelin? So we said about ghrelin being the uh, hormone, it's got a gut hormone that tells us basically when to eat. And what's quite interesting, I like these, I really like these. So he said that like protein um, 
relates to the greatest manipulation of ghrelin. So basically, uh, having protein kept ghrelin the lowest, which is good. It basically means higher ghrelin means higher appetite, because uh, I say it's convert or inverse to um, leptin. Um, carbs came in second in the short term. So we said that when they manipulate like a high carb diet, that actually in the short term had uh, a better effect on ghrelin. So they're looking specifically at ghrelin levels here. Not necessarily, don't, I guess it's one of those things where you can't 100% say that because they got higher or lower ghrelin that actually translated into higher or lower actual appetite regulation or like actual food consumption. But obviously it kind of makes sense that if you've got less ghrelin, you, you should be less hungry and you should therefore eat less. Um, but carbs are going to sit in the short term, so less than three hours, but not in the long term because after the long term, fats actually had uh, less or had a lower ghrelin uh, levels than carbs. So like protein like load at the most, Carbs lowered it the second most in the short term, but after three hours, fat then had a lower amount than carbs. But again, going back to our, you know, because we are a bit zealot or anti-zealot like in terms of ketogenic diets. Interestingly, fat had the, or has the worst effect on lowering ghrelin, which you bear in mind that most people go, oh, well, fat is the best in, the evidence shows it's the highest satiating macro. No, it's not, protein is. But people always say ketogenic diets, they just cause you to eat less. Anyway, okay, some people it might do, but you know, this kind of counters that and says, actually, no, it doesn't. One, one, one nil against the yeah. key Yeah. Well, cause the, so there was a study they did where ghrelin was suppressed more with a 77% carbohydrate meal versus a 75% fat meal. There's another one that said ghrelin suppressed more and higher PYY, which is good. Higher PYY does, again, um, help manage appetite. Uh, with an 88% carbohydrate uh, diet compared to 71% fat diet. So again, two studies there, again, showing that the hormones you would look at to assess appetite or hunger, carbohydrates had a better effect than fats. So why people claim ketogenic diets are more satiating, um, I have no idea. Probably just because they're eating better foods, because ketogenic diets, you tend to, you know, I say better food, sorry, um, like obviously, maybe it might help some people increase their protein because if you're reducing carb, if you've got to remove carbohydrates, they might basically cut out pizza, donuts, pancakes, chocolate, and actually just eat protein and you know butter and stuff. But a lot of them actually forget the protein similar to insulin as well, which they self forget about. Well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> true. Um, so yeah, and I guess like I would say, even though protein's still the king, um. There was interest on the protein research saying that actually a few studies obviously show ghrelin was suppressed more with protein. Some also didn't. So even though we still know protein is most satiating because the research does is quite categorical, I think we all accept that. Um, I guess it's not necessarily the reduction in ghrelin that's causing that because obviously some studies did show that protein didn't actually suppress ghrelin that much. So interesting. We might be suppressing other things as well. On the other well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it might just be like digestibility time in food transit and stuff like that. Like protein is harder to digest, so it just sits in the gut for a bit longer, um, somewhere on the line, stuff like that, I suppose. I don't know if that's actually factually accurate, but there's obviously another mechanism which is causing people to feel satiated or fuller um, rather than the fact that it's, it's reducing grilling because it's like saying some studies it's not. So. I think it's... Because the famous hormones are ghrelin and leptin, and they mm. particularly leptin, mm -hmm. and people forget or don't even know that there's a load of other hormones that affect hunger as well. Oh, loads. Probably, so, tons, tons. the study shows 
or it didn't affect this hormone, but is it affecting someone else? They're not exactly. even studying. Exactly. And, and obviously, talk about leptin. Obviously, he said, well, what about, can we optimize leptin then? Because obviously, that's something that's quite popular within the fitness industry and within coaches in terms of things like refeeds and diet breaks. We certainly talked about in the podcast, something that we, we kind of, uh, I suppose, practice to a certain extent. Um, but he talked about, okay, well, what affects leptin? He said about body fat stores um, and that. Uh, when body fat stores are high, we get more leptin, which drives the appetite down, which is kind of normal. That's the whole point. It's obviously, to, you know, the, when, you, when you're losing body fat, it wants you to eat more. When you have body fat, it wants you to eat less. That makes total sense. Um, but leptin is also increased through acute, uh, acute energy increase as well. So if you're dieting, um, you do see leptin uh, rise when you then overfeed for a short period. So like say like a cheat meal, a cheat day. Um, but it is more specifically attributed to higher carbohydrates than just, I mean, calories still increase leptin as well, but um, carbohydrates specifically seems to have the biggest effect on increasing leptin. Um, leptin also seems to affect our NEAT, as we know. So like as you diet and you get less leptin, you just get lazy. So it kind of changes, uh, you get this adaptive thermogenesis um, where basically you just burn a bit less calories because you get lazy as hell. So some, some of those don't even know what to do, they do. The yeah. front tap and maybe stop. You don't even notice because it's subconscious. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, like um, leptin obviously has this short-term effect on energy increase or energy expenditure, but it's just short-term. It's like it's nothing. I think the interesting part is like it's less than the actual food you're feeding. So like I think there was one study that showed like if you overfed someone on 670 uh, calories, I think I think calories are carbohydrates. I've just put 670, not grams or calories, but. I think it's calories, not grams, because obviously that would be four times the amount if it was grams. Um, but anyway, just say 670 calories. Um, their energy expenditure for that day only went up by 139. So okay, it did have a uh, an effect, a short-term increase on energy expenditure, but still only 25% of the actual calories you've increased by. So you're still on a net worse amount. Yeah. So you'd been better off just accepting the, the actual adaptive thermogenesis part of it uh, and lower leptin and just ate less. <laughs> um, so it's not stupid again, is it? No, no. no. Um, and I think like even then they said that some of the, the change in energy expenditure wasn't even necessarily 100% related to changing leptin levels either. So um, this is why I kind of like when people say about cheat meals and um, refeed days even, um, there's no evidence or s- to suggest that they just do enough to make any physiological benefit. Like cheat meals basically just a massive binge. They don't kickstart your metabolism. They don't increase energy expenditure, just like that study I've just talked about. Um, they don't make you burn more calories in the long run. It, the, the best they do is give you a psychological break, which might mean you're just more adherent in the long term because you've had a bit of a break so you can get back to dieting again. It's about as good as it gets. You're better off doing like sort of sustained diet breaks, you know, you break yeah. for a week or yeah. whatever. Because the, the, th- the theory basically is like you just, you let, and this, this is quite damning and quite depressing for anyone that's ever been overweight. But the theory is that basically your leptin levels don't ever really go back to what they were until you just um, regain your your lost uh, lean body mass and body fat. Uh, and unfortunately, there is some, some theories around like what's called like the the fat overshoot hypothesis. Um, and I don't know a lot about it, but I have heard like essentially it means that you gain you're primed to gain body fat, which makes sense. You're starving. Your um, you know, your body wants to gain, regain body fat because it wants to get back to a homeostasis or like a place of health. So when you overeat, you, you put on, you know, you, you do put on a lot of body fat um, and you end up sometimes putting on body fat quicker than you lost it and quicker than you putting on lean body mass. So you kind of get this overshoot where 
um, you don't get as much lean body mass back as you'd lost, but you get the body fat you've lost. So therefore, you end up overshooting and putting on more fat than you did in the first place, um, which I think you know you can sometimes see in in serial dieters. You know, people losing weight and redieting, they end up kind of putting on more weight than they lost in the first place because of that. Um, I think I can I read that. It takes a couple of days for the body to adapt to um, weight loss, so adaptions in like hunger hormones and all that sort of stuff. But it takes longer to adapt positively to when you regain yeah pretty weight. much yeah 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 so i mean yeah exactly i don't i think it might even be less than two days i mean i'm lyle i'm sure has written about this whether that's in the book you're yeah. reading i don't know but i think it's at the start maybe three days yeah because I, I don't know if, i don't know if this is a rapid fat loss book or one of his other books i think it's the one where what's the one where he does like almost intermittent fasting where he does like two days oh. he does like one day severe deficit one day maintenance one day slight surplus and he's hoping that that then kind of stops people getting adaptive thermogenesis over time um because he thinks like like you just said like it, it your body takes some time to kind of adapt so therefore by having like a low day a high medium day and a high day your body never really knows where it is and it doesn't adapt but like i yeah. guess that's all theory i don't know with it i don't think yeah. it actually works in practice but still i think he does talk but away it becomes a little bit practical you go on low calories you can't have these as such lower days because it becomes too low in the higher days they're not very high anymore yeah. oh yeah yeah that's what i say when when you when you inevitably get you weigh less and your calories drive so low just at an average yeah you're right your, your low days are going to be like unsustainable and your high days aren't even going to be that high yeah. so yeah like you said books are like purely body company yeah so you wouldn't necessarily want to fast for a day if you're yeah. worried about if you're really lean and you worry about muscle loss mm. you wouldn't be fasting for a day so that's when you're real practical way as if the calories are so low in the low days is to go mm. fast mm. and which people will do if they want to keep keep as much muscle as possible yeah. no exactly and to be fair the point about response times it makes absolute sense again because physiologically you think our body's going to be more responsive to um like short or, or underfeeding than overfeeding because kind of like underfeeding is very severe in you know in terms of risk to life overfeeding not quite so much Exactly. Yeah. I mean, our bodies want us to like don't want us to lose weight, but it doesn't mind so much. Obviously, it wants to gain weight. Unfortunately, so not too much. Mm. Um, so yeah, kind of guess like that, that's kind of what you'd have to say. Like, can you affect leptin? Well, you, we, the evidence does show that not really. In the short term, you might get little spikes, but it just returns to baseline again. So basically, and and obviously it doesn't change the adaptive thermogenesis part of it. It doesn't, you don't see an increase in thermogenesis, i.e. cheap meals don't fucking work, stop doing them. Um, and at best, refeeds might slightly reduce, I guess, your, your diet-induced appetite because psychological breaks, that's basically it. What he, like he said, the uh, bit about the leptin point in that you never get your leptin um, levels back until you... Re re um, on back basically your body fat and retain the or get back to the lean body uh, mass levels that's quite really well it's for anyone that's ever been overweight it's pretty fucking damning and like because you think well okay well then so you know you talk about set points and settling points so like you basically got your set point in terms of your body fat levels it likes to keep etc but that's also like thought of the same as like your leptin levels so basically you if you ever become overweight and you then lose weight and would you draw and drive down your leptin levels until you go back up to that weight again you're never going to have good appetite regulation and i'll be honest anecdotally i think that's probably again a real thing 
because how many overweight people that have lost weight do you know that can just go to eating like the eating uh, intuitively in the same way as people that have never been overweight do like almost no one anyone that's ever lost significant amounts of weight almost always will, in their mind has to so some quite proactive restraint don't they and we yeah. like we were talking um i don't know if we talked to dr mike actually um so dr mike i don't know if you will be listening to this dr michael banner but obviously he's lost some like 35 kilos a huge amount of weight um he's in seriously good shape now isn't he compared to obviously like the, the amount because the amount of weight loss compared to obviously what he was um like i think six years he said so it's a long time but it's incredible but he says himself like he can't really ever just kind of let go and just eat naturally or intuitively because he would go back to the weight he was previously. And that kind of makes sense because his appetite regulation isn't the same as someone that's never been 35 kilos overweight. Yeah. Because, and that's probably down to this mechanism, leptin. Yeah. Because I'm doing the experiment now of uh, intuitive eating and I, mm. right, I'm, I've got food in house that I know is low calorie. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just going, oh, I'll have whatever and then see where my appetite goes after eating. I mean, like, no. You're... You're, you're showing right. restraint. You're showing actually yeah. proactive restraint because you have to. Now, we're talking, yeah. obviously, people that have never been overweight can, like, again, I use Jenna as a good example, the wife. She never been overweight. She naturally manages her appetite without even ever having to consider her calories. Doesn't even yeah. think about it. But she just happens to eat to pretty much, a, a give or take, you know, a few pounds here and there, I'm sure. But she pretty much manages her appetite and her body weight without thinking. Like an over previously overweight person probably can't do that. They have to think about what they eat all the time, because when they don't, they put the weight back on because they just naturally don't have a very good appetite management. And I, as I say, I think it's this makes anecdotal sense that it's probably down yeah. to the mechanism of you your leptin levels are just not like they should be because you don't get those back until you basically put the weight back on, which is really shit. However, like there was some discussion around going back to set points or setting points. The longer time you spend at a certain condition or body fat levels or whatever your thermostat you know using analogy of thermostat does come down so it might you might be able to change that over time so it does get easier but to be honest someone did ask james that question he said like years like almost like your whole life it's gonna be so it's kind of like it's not like oh yeah spend a year there then you're back to normal i'm not unfortunately when i was 18 so i've been not 18 stone for i don't know eight years mm-hmm. nine years and there's still that, even though I know I'm not going to get back there because I'd have to really seriously not even consider what I'm eating, really. But there's still that, like, I know if I went on holidays and I really wanted to, I could shovel it in mm-hmm. without question. Mm-hmm. And if you do that for a couple of months, then you, you can gain a couple of stone over again, problem. Easy. So, yeah. 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 So, you think you look at people who go on holidays who've been previously overweight. Because they're out to their comfort zone, they don't know, especially they don't know how to track as as well. That they they're a bit like, oh fuck, I don't know what uh, I don't want to do about it. Mm-hmm. And we see them gain a fair whack. So you, you sort of sort of see, well, actually, yeah, you still got your left. It's less gone back to where it was mm-hmm. because you've not regained all the weight. So you still got it in you. Because I've still got it in me to be huge. Yeah. Just, yeah, I like the way you you put it like that. It's kind of like. You still have it in you. You're basically describing the fact that you don't feel that you have a very good natural appetite regulation. That's basically what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Because you know, I'm intuitively eating. I'm making sure that my breakfast is probably 250 calories. I know but I'm liquid. That, going to it, it, in all honesty, mate, that's not really intuitive eating. It's, it's not. not it's not listening to your body. You're, you've disassociated no. yourself from your natural appetite regulation because you're yeah. just you're you're basically 
you might as well be doing the same as what I do in flexible dieting and counter macros. You're disassociating yourself by and just counter macros in your head. Whereas yeah, pretty, I, whereas, yeah. whereas I'm writing it down on on a MyFitnessPal app or whatever, and I'm just I'm yeah. I'm adhering to my diet through that rather than listening to my body telling me. Because same thing, I think if I listen to my body, I would overeat. However, what I will say is, and I, and we did have this discussion uh, yesterday during the conference, and that as much as I do agree with what or I stand by what I just said anecdotally, in that I do think that is a thing, and obviously this thing about leptin and the fact that obese people will probably always have to think about what they eat. I still also think, from personal experience and working with uh, clients, when you not use the term reverse diet, but when you basically um, overfeed for a long enough time, I do think it does have an effect on appetite still and that it does get better. Now, whether that's to do with leptin, it might have nothing to do with it. Because like we've said, there are so many hormones that affect appetite, even though leptin is probably still mismanaged or uh, dysregulated, I should say, um, in obese people or formerly obese people, I should say. There's probably still other uh, appetite hormones that you can get back by overfeeding for a long time. So obviously it's kind of like it's not an all or nothing thing. It's not like just because your leptin's out that you, oh, you're going to forever be hungry. Um, there's other appetite regulations where actually if you overfeed for long enough, you kind of you reduce all the diet fatigue and actually your appetite is then better. Because yeah. I, I think it is. Like I, I would say even like going back to my own personal experience, like and I've seen this in people I've worked with, that when they've spent a whole year on a gaining phase there or thereabouts, when they used to be like a continuously hungry person, all of a sudden their appetite changes. Like, they just thought, actually, do you know what? I don't want to eat anymore. And even when they go back to dieting again, they find dieting sticking to the diet easier because they don't feel as hungry as they did last time they dieted. So I do think there's something in that. And again, I don't really know the mechanism, but I would hypothesize it's something to do with just some of the other appetite regulating hormones rather than leptin, and that you have upregulated some of them, maybe. Does that make yeah, sense? That's a good point, Gulina. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. It's, like, it's scary when you say, oh, I can't really change leptin in the long term that much. Then we say, well, actually, have they studied the other however many hormones are in the gut and yeah, yeah. Exactly. you respond to being ten years yeah. non-obese or whatever? Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they have. That, like, I just think anecdotally there is definitely a something about re- overfeeding for, or not even necessarily re- overfeeding. Sorry, when I use the term overfeeding, I, I mean probably like not dieting, basically. So going back to either maintenance or slightly above or having gaining phases, but basically a long term, long time not dieting. I think has a really positive effect on people's natural appetite regulation, I think, for the most part. I guess, again, it's going to be very individual and relative. But Oh, yeah, 100%. I think looking back at my weight loss, my, I bounced. I didn't go from, like, my lowest was 12.3 maybe, or 12.4, something like 12.4. From 18, I think 18 and a half was my biggest. I didn't go straight there. I didn't go from, like, 18.7 to 12 in like one stint of dieting i went 18 to 17 stay there 17 to 15 stay there for a bit bounced back to 16 came to 14 bounced back then got from i think it was 14 to 12 mm-hmm. so I've, I've, I've never it's never been like a linear like within six months i dropped five stones over a couple of years yeah so you know what i mean so i never my body never went from the extreme of 18 to 12 yeah. in a okay. and again that might make a difference again so but who knows? Who knows? Um, talking of cortisol, then, as we did, um, cortisol, we've already kind of already gone through that, really. So, obviously, the Minnesota starvation experience stuff showing about um, cortisol actually uh, didn't change, obviously, or didn't affect the edema. But 
as I say, that didn't really even increase any of those people. And obviously they lost a severe amount of weight. So it's kind of like, well, I'm not sure the relevance of optimizing cortisol through, through even like diet breaks and refeeds. Because again, like they, they were shown that they didn't really change um, or the baseline levels didn't really change in those to, to actually, because I think when they refed them, they like they didn't actually change enough to, to say well, actually that by by refeeding or changing those levels, they would then increase appetite. Right. Yeah, I'm just like so. I mean, like the calories they dropped, it's crazy. The adaptions they made was ridiculous, mm -hmm. crazy, mm -hmm. crazy, crazy. Forty percent reduction in our um, our miles, yeah, mm -hmm. something ridiculous again. Like that's that's not seen in normal dieting, like mm -hmm. it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. But um, obviously, it's like basically they're saying like cortisol doesn't increase with dieting. Essentially, what they're saying, um, and that most studies showing like increases in carbohydrates didn't even reduce cortisol. So it's kind of like, well, actually, why are we trying to manipulate it then? Because well, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I mean, I guess, and I mean, even taking the MS, the MSC study, so the Minnesota Salvation Experiment, it's kind of like. It's not real world, is it? It's not a real world situation. No one's really going to the extreme nature of that very low calorie dieting nowadays, really, other than the potato dude, um, obviously, who only ate potatoes, or fucking Mr. AB, or whatever his name is, the, the guy they studied back in the, yeah. I don't even know when that was. was. That was When was that, 90s or something? I don't know. I don't even know what time period that was, but he didn't eat for a year, did he? No, uh, that's extreme. Was it Minnesota, they, they ate, was it 50% of their... Um, maintenance calories, something like yeah. They, yeah, they were on some like a thousand calories a day or or less or something. Like that. I mean, bear in mind they were probably you know, they didn't sit down and watch TV then either, so they were probably a bit more active than us. Yeah, oh yeah, back but, then, yeah. Essentially, I guess like with cortisol and even like leptin as well, I suppose because it relates refeeds or diet breaks. Just basically, um, they don't make a physiological difference in fat loss. Um, then. That you know, compared to like, um, yeah, like intermittent energy restriction should just increase fat loss over the long term. That's basically all it does. It's just kind of like, well, it just gives them a, a psychological break, so it allows yeah. to keep them more adherent over the long term. That's that's essentially what it what it does. But I mean, also even I mean, even not actually while we're on that, I guess because one of the things we James talked about again was alternating versus straight dieting. Um, obviously, there was a the recent Matador study where they showed like straight dieting versus two weeks on, two weeks off approach, and that the two weeks on, two weeks off approach um, had obviously a beneficial effect to fat loss. So the people that are two weeks on, two weeks off lost more weight, which is like, whoa, that's cool, man. And they hypothesized that's because there was um, a better or a, a less adaptive thermogenesis on the people that did two weeks on, two weeks off. And it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, that's kind of what Lyle, we were talking about Lyle's thing about having obviously like high low days or high medium low days to basically negate an adaptive thermogenesis so therefore like your, your metabolism is slowing down effectively um but um the funny thing is like didn't change any hormones there was no change in hormones i think from the studies the matador study in terms of like the differences so like alternating versus straight which you'd expect to probably see um if that was the case in terms of because of the reasons we've already talked about um but what was also quite interesting is, uh, and it was a bit of a mic drop moment, really, in that uh, James said, right, he doesn't buy this adaptive thermogenesis uh, hypothesis. He says, I don't buy it because you would ex the, the way the data was is like, um, 
I can't remember exactly what it was now, but essentially there was like too much weight loss early on for it to be adaptive thermogenesis or not enough. I can't remember which way around it was now, but basically said the data doesn't look right for it to be that the two week on, two week off basically said that they did metabolism didn't slow down compared to the other way. So that just doesn't look right. And obviously he's very good with statistics, isn't he, James? That's basically his yeah. thing. And he picked out, he said, I hypothesize, and I'm pretty damn sure I'm right in that actually these guys adhered better. Yeah, there's nothing to do with with their metabolism changing, and it's like, what do you mean? So he said basically, they were all these the study this study was given. They were given their food, so they were said right here is X amount of calories. That's what food you got to eat to try and control basically their calorie intake. So the for the two groups, but it was free living conditions, so they were allowed to go out. Now he said, put it this way, right? If you were told for sixteen or twelve weeks straight, you can you have to have a thousand calorie deficit, or you can have for two weeks on, two weeks off, you're probably going to be more motivated to stick to diet if you've only got to do it for two weeks on, two weeks off than you're going to be for doing it 16 weeks straight or whatever else. You're more likely on the 16 week straight diet to, when they give you your food to eat, go, fuck me, I'm hungry, and go to the donut shop and buy some donuts as well. Yeah. Whereas the two I... weeks on, you're going to be motivated. And he said this is compounded by the fact that lots of the, or the, lots of the people in that study had a very high dropout rate, which kind of makes sense. So right. if people didn't stick to it, they dropped out. Well, yeah, of course, yeah, which shows that DUS is a major, a major thing of it, isn't it? Correct. So it's, it's kind of like, as, as like total mic drop. It's like, this is, that was so obvious. Yeah, we were all banging, about, banging on about this study, weren't we, when it came out and, um, what was it, even like a year ago or whenever it was. We were all saying, oh, this is cool. Like, this is what we should start implementing with clients two weeks on, two weeks off. That doesn't mean it hasn't got any relative use because actually adherence is everything. Um, well, it's like after two weeks, you know the goal is easily achievable. And when you might say, who's told someone, look, at your weight, you need to be dieting for 30 weeks, they're going to go, oh my God, that's mm -hmm. a, or is it seven months or something? They go, like, there's no light to the tunnel for me. I can't see that far ahead. But if you say, oh, God, you died for 14 days, if you, I think you look back, people go on holidays. Mm -hmm. I got 14 days on holidays. I'm super motivated to do it for 14 days. I'll do anything. Yeah. That's what's that situation. I can diet hard for 14 days, no win. I've got two weeks of maintenance. And then I can go again. In two weeks, I know there's only that there's only 14 days. I can mm -hmm. see that it's easily achievable. I think psychologically, and it's easier to, to get your head around it. Mm -hmm. It's like how much as a freak out that you know you've got a massive goal to hit, and it's like not just a breakdown goal, isn't it? Your massive goal is so far ahead of you. You have to have many goals in order to build up to get to that. Don't go to the top of the mountain. You've got to start at the fucking bottom. Mm -hmm. So that situation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think lastly he went through his kind of like stress hormones and appetite, so it kind of links into cortisol a bit, but he did talk through a study about uh, monkeys and that they basically fed, um, so in, in packs of monkeys you have like dominant monkeys and obviously like stressed monkeys almost, so you kind of get like the dominant ones that are confident in themselves, stressed monkeys that tend to be the anxious monkeys that sit around in the background. Um, and basically when they said that, when they gave an unlimited amount of normal foods, um, <laughs> Johnny, don't. Oh, Johnny's just on the wanker sign. I think you know what he's inferring. You know, stress monkeys, old monkeys doing stuff they shouldn't be doing in zoos. But uh, dominant monkeys basically maintained their weight when they were given uh, free or ablivitin eating on normal food. Um, however, the stress monkeys doubled their weight when they were then given um, uh, hyperpowerful foods, so cookies, I think. I think they were given cookies. But the dominant monkeys maintained their weight. So it kind of inferred that like a stressed monkey, a dominant monkey who's confident themselves, even given hyper palatable food, didn't 
overeat, whereas a stress monkey did and doubled their body weight. Um, I think the stress monkey lost weight when they were given normal food, actually. So yeah, so on a normal food diet, dominant monkeys maintain weight, stress monkeys lost weight. On a hyperpalatable, i.e. human food, really tasty cookies, the stress monkeys doubled their weight and the dominant monkeys held their weight. So basically it shows that there is a potential link to stress and hyperpalatable diet foods, uh, diets and food. So basically when you're stressed, you want really tasty stuff. You don't overeat on lettuce, which again, I think anecdotally we would all say is um, yeah. probably also true in humans. So, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Would you class lack of sleep as stress? Exactly, yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Like You kind of get like, in, there's one of the things around, well, this kind of links in quite nicely actually. So one of the points was actually it was related to, there was a link to increased cortisol in these in stress, obviously stress hormone. So, um, and that only, the increased cortisol actually only happened when they were given hyperpalatable foods. Interesting. Didn't happen when they were given the, the, uh, the normal uh, monkey food. Um, they did, or James also said there is some human data that supports it, but it's not in all studies. So, you know, take it or leave. You've got to look at the whole evidence body, haven't you? So, um, yeah. They did say that cortisol responders, so people that uh, did have high cortisol, uh, tends to show an increase in ghrelin, which we said obviously manages appetite in terms of tells us when to eat, compared to cortisol non-responders. So, and again, you know, people that seem to be a cortisol responder, um, if they get stressed, they obviously see this increase in ghrelin causing them to eat more. So, as opposed, to some people that uh, get stressed, they don't. They're that cortisol non-responder, they don't see this ghrelin increase. So. Um, Kind of shows you that there is basically a lot of uh, stuff around stress and eating, which we, we kind of all know, um, I'll be honest, there isn't really a resolution to that other than I think one of the best things that tends to work are things like cognitive behavior therapy and basically just counseling, um, yeah. like for stress eating. It's like it's quite a difficult thing really to, to deal with, isn't it? We know just from the support we're trying to give in, even in our group or, or our, own, our own clients. But I think it's quite a sensitive subject because unless you're unless you unless you've done it yourself maybe then you maybe you don't have the like not not, not sympathy it's like you don't maybe you don't understand empathy. how yeah, people, empathy. You know? empathy yeah yeah as um, i was obviously when Eliza was born mm-hmm. like i gained two stone pretty much yeah and just thought because i think it would have been different same as living with my parents when i was when i would buy food and stuff myself for the week or whatever but obviously here and now obviously you got Shirley the um, analyzer, you've got foods there that you may not necessarily buy yourself. And then when you're tired, for me anyway, I go, no, I know it's there. I know I can go like this and pour a bowl of cereal. When as if, like you said, if it was in my, if it was in like normal food when you're stressed, then it probably might not have happened. If I was more, it goes back to food environment, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. If I was more in, not more in control, if I lived on my own, then it probably wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Because I know I wouldn't have had those foods around because they're hyper hyper palatable. Yeah, they easy to get to and they're easy to make. Mm-hmm. That's why that's what yeah. happened to me. But the thing is, you go back to that that monkey study of saying, well, it's only the hyper palatable foods which increased cortisol. So, you know, it's interesting that you relate to what you're then just saying. But um, I suppose, like, just looking at the body evidence, one way to maybe hormonally optimize for st- or to manage stress is. Um, Mindfulness interventions. So I think five out of eight studies that they that the where there is sort of kind of some body of evidence for it did show a decrease in cortisol when stress-related mindfulness interventions were uh, given. So there we go. That's one way of looking at it. Maybe try and find some kind of mindfulness stuff to try and help manage stress and reduce cortisol. So um, 
And then this does link into sleep loss. So uh, sleep loss or lack of sleep quality does is linked with higher cortisol. So not only higher during the day, but uh, less of a decline in the evening as well. So we said that that should naturally decline in the evening cortisol, but um, some people it doesn't. And that's also linked to people that overeat as well. So if you if you kind of, and, it, and I say we can't establish causation, but correl a correlation of that, people that are obese tend to have higher cortisol levels at the evening, I think is what he said. So um, quite interesting. Although one of the things about sleep, he said, uh, it might just be the fact that you're awake longer, so you have more of an opportunity to eat. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. Because I usually, when I get in the cup of storm, I was eating in the night, mm -hmm. like ten, eleven o'clock. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe longer later. Yeah. yeah. And it's like the thing is like there are. We do know that there's a lot of studies out there that have shown like an increase in ghrelin, decreased leptin when you have sleep deprivation, even though there's, I think the data on it isn't hundred percent consistent, so it isn't completely replicated all the time. But um, there is some data that shows that some of those hormones might get out of whack and then will lead to things like snacking and overeating. So, and obviously that then does affect the calorie, calorie balance uh, equation. So, yeah, I, I, to be honest, we've, this is a long episode, um, although I think it's actually like, quite cool. I really enjoy talking about all yeah. this, actually. Um, so. I suppose like the end result is like, basically, you can't do a lot of any of these hormones to op optimise, you know, in air quotes, to optimise any of them. Um, it basically always comes down to the same, same things we bang on about every episode. Um, obviously, calories being the main driver, um, but just tr like basically well-being, manage your well-being is probably the biggest thing we can say. All of the, if you manage your well-being, these things will work themselves out. Yeah. Like they've all got these, we talked about at the start, got these natural feedback loops and all these complications that um, are involved in it. If you kind of manage your sleep, manage your stress, um, Eat as well as you can in terms of trying your best. And I know hormones do affect you, how much you eat, i.e., you know, like the appetite regulators and stuff we talk about, but do your best to manage your appetite as well as you can and therefore eat to energy balance. Um, make sure you're not deficient, get plenty of nutrients in, and basically, like, be physically active. You do all of that, get some sunlight, have a good community, all the things we talk about when we talk about, like, the most helpful people in the world in the blue zones. And these things will literally just sort themselves out. Yeah, I think, but it makes it it's, it makes it even more stupid when you hear people talk about these these little tiny differences that 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 is the holy grail. And it's like, look, it never is. Always look at the blue zones. They're all slightly different in what they eat: more fat, more carbs, more veg, um, less veg, whatever. No and veg. All, no veg. No yeah. veg. Not the pimas. Um, Inuits, isn't it? Inuits. Like, yeah. Like yeah. Fat, blubber, and yeah. seal, whale. And they are perfectly healthy. So it's like, look at it. If, if you listen to us, Google the blue zones. Look at it like, how many are there? It's like uh, 10. Yeah, it? I think it's like less, five, six, right. seven, like that. Have a look at what they, what, what they average is what they do. Have a look at what is common. And then you sort of realise, actually, if I, if I base my lifestyle around them, then I'm probably not going to go far wrong. But that's the thing, it's lifestyle. I, I, I just want to highlight that because it's not just nutrition. It's, there are other factors when it comes to health, all of the lifestyle, well-being stuff. And, yeah. Yeah, it is right, isn't it? Yeah. So, so essentially, this hour and 20-odd minutes, the end shot is, don't worry about your hormones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But that was always going to happen. Come on, look, there's no way to optimize your hormones. I mean, actually, I have heard that if you get the skinfold test of your left testicle done, um, that will tell you basically how many carbohydrates you should eat on the hour every hour to basically optimize fat loss and, and muscle retention during a dieting phase. Sounds good. Yeah, but you, you have to no. you have to shave it first because obviously the hair then gets in the way of the skinfold test. Otherwise, oh, that means you have to increase carbs. Wrong data. Oh, oh no! God damn it! Anyway, yeah. I hope that's been useful for everyone. Like, I know there's a lot of terms and stuff, and to be honest, we don't really understand it. As I say, we're not endocrinologists; we don't understand a lot of it. Um, I suppose you get a bit of an idea of general uh, mechanisms, etc., but not really. Um, because let's be honest, it ain't that complicated. Really, I mean, it is complicated, but the end result is just don't eat too much and, you know, be physically active, just be generally healthy, and then you're... That's not really helpful <laughs> advice, is it? Be general, no. generally healthy. <laughs> That's really crap advice. <laughs> fat loss is very basic and it's very simple. It's just what impacts the energy balance equation, mm -hmm. which is complicated. The energy balance equation itself mm -hmm. is not complicated, even though people do try and complicate it. Complicate it. So, get enough sleep. Um, what's, what's the saying? Um, uh, diet, not too much, mostly veg. Yeah. I, mostly veg. I do not mean vegetarian. Plants. There's basically that. Eat, eat mostly plants, not too much, not too less, or too little. Some, some meat, and some meat and dairy, and yeah, be physically active. If you can't do that, you can't go too far wrong. Yeah, exactly. So what else would help? Being rich. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. I mean, this is this is one thing we 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 haven't. I don't think we've really talked too much. So we have on some of the episodes, but like obviously, like um, psychosocial and like socioeconomic factors that all, they 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 also play a part in all of this. Like, can someone afford to eat certain things, or is it even um, acceptable within like as I say, like social social factors in terms of how you eat, etc. And it's yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's nutrition's a funny old world. You've got imagine you've got. You're worth 50 million quid. You can employ a chef. You can employ someone like us to stay with you 24 7. The slap of donuts at your hand, yeah. These adaptions you see in like the palatability of foods. If the chef's good enough, he can make a low carb meal that's still tasty. And then you've got someone handing you food, making you food for you, telling you what to do. So these adaptions don't get, well, they do happen, but they're just not as, maybe not as pronounced and you don't act in them as normal people would. Mm -hmm. So, I think it, it does help, doesn't it? Any environment you're in is different. You can afford anything you want mm -hmm. for the chefs, dietitians, nutritionists, and I think it's like I think it's like anything, mate. Money might make some things easier. Yeah, but it doesn't stress. mean yeah, and it do, doesn't mean that you can't do it though. No, no, of course not. None of us are rich. No. Yeah, you just and I'll be honest. I still argue the whole and this is a maybe this is an episode uh, topic we should maybe go on one day, but. Um, I don't believe it is actually that expensive to eat healthy. You're right. Because that's one what number complaint for most people is, oh, I can't afford to buy that much fruit and veg and stuff. It's right. like a fucking bag of carrots, like 49p, mate, for like a kilo. Don't give me that. You got them, um, what do they call them? Wonky peppers. Yeah. I think it was six for a pound or something like that. Potatoes, similar. Oh, pota potatoes are dirt cheap. Potatoes are one of the cheapest things around. Yeah. But you, you go in the... You go in the cereal life, for example, for the kids' cereal. Mm. Crave, little box, £3.50. Yeah. 
tiny box. And you can't, eat, and you can't eat healthy. Say it again. And you can't eat healthy, but you can exactly. afford, but you can afford crave for three pound fifty. So the same, for the same price of a box of crave, you could have, you could have had something like, I know you wouldn't just eat these, but you could have like three, three and a half bags of peppers, like twenty-one peppers, mm. which in volume is a lot more. Yeah, it's like being intelligent with how you shop it. Absolutely. But anyway, like I said that's probably an episode for uh, for another another day. I just want to shout out all of the MNU grads that graduated this weekend. Congratulations, everyone there. I was there to see them, so that was quite cool. Well done. Um, one is obviously our own, very own Matthew Morgan, who wasn't at his own graduation because he's in the middle of the Croatian Sea. What sea is Croatia sitting on? I don't actually know. My geography is terrible. Um, he's sailing, essentially, somewhere outside of Split. Um, so, well done. Uh Big, massive, uh, obviously, thank you to the mattrician guys who put the event on. It was fantastic. Huge thank you to James um, for, obviously, the all the knowledge bombs. I also want to shout out um, Aaron, actually, at uh, Myonomics. So if anyone doesn't follow, go follow. It's uh, M-Y-O-N-O-M-I-C-S, Myonomics. Um, really, really good guy, really great account, puts out some amazing content as well. Um, met met him uh, in person. Obviously, we've been t- talking on uh, the gram for a while and stuff. But met him in person at the weekend and super nice dude. Like I say, puts out some amazing content. Gave me one of his t-shirts. Look, Johnny, you can see it. Well, it. Yeah. It's nice, nice, isn't it? Very nice. Yeah. I mean, uh, sorry, Aaron. It's not quite as nice as the NNN stuff. <laughs> Bias, but uh, <laughs> um, no, he's really nice, and I'm really appreciative. So I am rocking it recording the podcast right now. It looks nice. Um, yeah, Carlton as well. Shout out to that man. He also gave me one of his... Um, uh, ooh, Johnny's got his MNU tee on. Um, he gave me one of his T-shirts, which uh, is also very nice. So I'll be rocking that another day. Um, He's one jacked dude. Car- yeah, Carlton is like ridiculously jacked. But I do love the dude, even though he's a tosser. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, but no, and... Uh, yeah, shout out to obviously the, everyone. Like actually, Luke Hanna, uh, Mark as well, uh, Mark King Lee, Michael Banner, Dean Zweck, all these guys. If any of you lot listen, should give a shout out because um, it was amazing. Obviously, spend the weekend with you guys. Um, so yeah, it's such a fun time. I love. I do love the, the after parties. They do get pretty funny. Yes. Yeah, they do get a bit messy and pretty funny. So uh, good time was had by all. I think the best time was had by Paul though. Was it? Yeah, Paul Cocker, he had an incredible Friday night, I understand, and a very good Saturday night. Well, I'm Friday night. Are we allowed to talk about that? No, I think that's probably not safe for podcast. Okay. Yeah. So, on that note, I think I should push the button. It's probably an hour and a half, but it's, this could be our longest ever episode, mate. It's, it's a, it was a big episode. I liked it. It was, but it was a good one. It was a good one. It's so, a cool. Cool one. Right. Bonjour. Button. Thanks for listening to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast. We'll speak to you all next week.